So what do we have in terms of hobbies in the room? What do you guys like to do in your spare time? Violet? Crochet. Interesting. Music? Read? Mountain bike and ski at the same time? Yeah. Go for it. Yes. Model building. If you get hurt, don't tell your dad I said go for it, by the way. Model building. What kind of models? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sarah? Video games? Yep. Mechanics? Craftsmanship. Good. Not building knives? Or forging knives, I guess is the term. Carson, was that a hand? What you got? Sports? Yep, all sports. Just give me all of them. What's your top sport? Football. Nice. Yeah. Oh, okay. You're a writer. Excellent. Good. I missed somebody? Yes. Ride horses. Excellent. So, yeah. Cooking. That's good. I liked cooking, too. I was never very good at it, but I liked it. So if you were to put together your dream team for whatever hobby that you like to do, how would you go through? This is just for rhetorical. You can just answer in your own thinking here. How, what kind of selection process do you go through when picking the, the best of the best to be on a team or somebody to be a part of the hobby that you're doing? Obviously, I, I, I default to basketball. That's what I grew up playing. And so typically, if we're going to choose our basketball team, it's people that know how to play the sport. My daughter just called me from uh, college. She's in an intramural, and they have their playoffs coming up. And I said, hey, you made the playoffs. She's like, everybody makes the playoffs. I go, your team's struggling? She goes, yeah, they, they don't know how to dribble. I'm like, okay, so that's, that's a problem. All right, so you want to choose people who know how to do the game, probably some skill, some height, some basketball IQ. Um, just got an email from somebody who is engaged on their debate team in their school, and so they're looking for advice how to engage with their topic, and so how would you choose people to be on your debate team? You're looking for people with high intellect that know the structure of debate, um, well-spoken, organized ideas, those kind of things. Uh, if you're going to form a band, right, who do you choose to be involved in that project with you, people that no music, and also the same type of music that you like. And so we go through all of these different filters of who we would choose on our all-star team. And the, the interesting thing is, and, and there's nothing inherently uh, wrong with any of that thinking, but it's a contrast and it's shocking because when we look at how Jesus chose people to follow him, it is completely different than we think. He does so in ways that are jarring. So as, as we read these couple of verses tonight, you guys are probably familiar with this particular text because you've read it before, or maybe you've heard about this uh, interaction. And so we know how the story ends. And so it doesn't shock us to hear what Jesus is saying. But I assure you that when Jesus made this particular selection in Matthew chapter 9, that everybody around, even, even the disciples, were going, why him? This, this makes absolutely no sense. So I'm going to read our passage here, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 9 through 13. And you see on the, uh, the board behind me that the title of the message tonight is Who Jesus Calls. 
Who exactly does Jesus call? Verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The beginning of verse 9, it says that Jesus went on from there. So if you kind of jump back in your memories to what we were talking about last Thursday, that Jesus had just healed the man that was paralyzed, and now he's leaving that miracle, that location, and he's traveling with his current disciples. He hasn't chosen all of them yet, obviously. And he comes to a, a tax collector's booth. And you have to remember, who is the author of this gospel? It's not a trick question. Matthew. Matthew's writing his own account of how he was called to follow Jesus. That must have been quite an experience. And what, what's interesting is that we, we learn here that Matthew actually had some great humility in writing this account. And we'll kind of weave in a couple of things from, from Mark and Luke. But the first thing that we're told by Matthew is that he was in his tax booth. He was at work for the Roman government. And when everybody would have heard that particular person being chosen, again, like I mentioned, even the disciples would have been like, why him? Why are you choosing this particular individual? Every single one of us, if we had been in that setting, would have been offended by this choice. And the reason is this. The Romans had occupied the land, had overtaken the Jewish people, had subjected them to their, their pagan style of government, and then were imposing upon them taxation. Now, there's nothing wrong with taxes. God has instituted that. In fact, he, he commands us to pay our taxes. And as a side note, he even tells us to pay our taxes when the government is corrupt. Jesus paid his taxes to the Roman government. So there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem was that the system itself was corrupt. So Rome would allow people to buy tax franchises and you would then collect taxes, and they had basically, this is a very oversimplification, but they had two rules for the collectors. One was collect enough money that goes to the empire, and then above and beyond that, you can collect as much as you want, as much as you think you can get away with, and keep it for yourself. So the people knew that this was happening. They knew that they were being forced to pay wrong amounts of taxes. And what made it even worse is that Matthew, who was a Jewish man, bought the right to rob from his own people. It'd be one thing if he was a Gentile. It's another thing that it's a Jewish person. 
And so he was seen as a traitor. He was seen as a, a sellout for money. It wasn't just that he was disliked. Matthew was hated by the people. And at this point, there's no evidence of Matthew being changed yet. Jesus calls him in the middle of his sinful tax booth practices and says, I want you to follow me. And I'm sure that even in the disciples' minds, in the back of their minds thinking, this is, this is not right. Why did Jesus choose this particular man to follow him? And so he sees Matthew and he gives him a command. He says, you follow me. And what's amazing is that Matthew does so immediately. He gets up from his booth and he follows Christ without any hesitation. And so obedience here is actually the first fruit of somebody who says that they are a follower of Christ. And Christy and I were talking about this last Thursday with the paralytic. When Jesus told the paralytic to get up and go home, he did exactly that. He obeyed immediately. Matthew does the same thing. Jesus looks at him, says, follow me, and he gets up and follows him. What's, what's interesting about Matthew, I mentioned his humility here. In Luke chapter 5, we learn that Matthew left everything behind when he did this. He had full knowledge that when he left that taxation booth, that he was going to lose his job and he was going to lose a significant amount of money. And he did it. He did it quickly. This is a very unlikely choice, but here's what happens next. So Jesus sees him, he calls him, and then look at verse 10. It says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So now Jesus is at a home and he's sharing a meal with people that would have been the, the off-cast of society. In the Jewish mindset, this is not good and this is not correct, but for the Jewish mindset, there were two buckets of people. There were the religious, there were the faithful, there were the people that would go to synagogue and they would give their offerings and they would pay their tithes, they would listen um, to the, the laws of, of God. Those were the religious. And then there were the sinners. And so in their mind, there was this, this huge divide. Are you either religious or are you a sinner? And so it almost became like a a technical term. This was the tax collectors and sinners. You see that in the gospel accounts a lot because it became like a, a title for people who had discarded God's law. The implication is, of course, that the religious people are not sinful. And so they had this separation and they had this, this attitude that they were, they were better than him. So Jesus is at this party, at this feast, and he is sharing a meal with Many, in fact, it's so big, it's such, a, it's such an overwhelming group of people that Matthew inserts the word behold, like take notice of this, pay attention. This is a significant gathering of people. And we then learn from Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5 that this is actually at Matthew's house. So he meets Christ, he follows Jesus, he leaves this corrupt way of, of gaining wealth at a significant cost to himself, and then he throws a party at his house so that everybody can come and meet 
Jesus. This is what he wanted to do. It makes me think of Matthew later on, chapter 10, verse 32, where it says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father. Matthew wanted to tell everybody that he had met Jesus. So he invites all of the sinful people that he knew and says, come to my house and I want you to listen to this man. I mean, think about this in a a modern day setting. Imagine you getting saved and then inviting all of your unsaved friends from public school to come to your house and listen to you read the Bible. That'd be some interesting dynamics, right? And he just, he's so overwhelmed by the grace of Christ that he says, I don't care about the awkwardness. I don't care about the social uh, acceptance or or lack thereof. I want people to come and, and meet Jesus. And so there's this amazing scene. Matthew's been changed. And then all of a sudden there starts to be this this attitude from the religious people. Look what happens to uh, verse 11 here. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, those were the religious elite, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? This is an accusation. What are some things you guys notice about the accusation that the Pharisees say? What stands out to you about this accusation? Yeah. That's the implication. These are sinful people. We are not. And that's what they believed. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there's, like, why is he doing that? Either he's too good or maybe even he's not as good as everybody thinks he is, one or the other. So there's there's an accusation there. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Who did the Pharisees say it to? To his disciples. So these guys go into the house and they're, they're offended by Jesus and they don't even have the guts or the fortitude to confront Jesus themselves. They kind of go over to the side and say, hey, why is your teacher doing this? That's cowardly. So they come to the disciples. They ask this question. It's kind of this thinly veiled accusation about Jesus. And like was mentioned, it says the tax collectors in sinners. So they believe themselves to be superior. But it says that Jesus heard this. I love this. Is not the, this is not the main point of the passage, but I love this aspect of, of the Lord Jesus is that he steps in as a defender of Matthew. Like his, his disciples have been approached by this, this, uh, this quote-unquote religious leaders. Jesus steps up to confront them on behalf of his own. In fact, in our passage here, <clears throat> Jesus is going to quote a, a verse, which we'll get to in a minute. He quotes the same verse later on in Matthew chapter 12, and he does so again in defense of his disciples. So Jesus completely understands the dynamic that when you decide to follow him and and the accusation comes, he's going to be your defender. He will step in on your behalf. So this is the rebuke. Jesus confronts them, and he actually rebukes them in three different ways. The first way is he he gives this imagery of a doctor. This is, um, maybe you could say, it's, it's just 
obvious. This is logical. He says, think about what you're saying. When Jesus heard this in verse 12, he said, it is not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. The, 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 um, the genius of the teaching of Christ. It's so clear. One of the commentators for this particular section said, can you imagine a doctor that only spent time with people who were well? What kind of doctor would that be? So Jesus is saying, you, in order for you to become a follower of Christ, the first thing that is required is that you have to recognize that you are sick. If you think you're okay, if you think you're moral, if you think you're a good person, even if you say, oh, I'm not perfect, but in the back of your mind, you don't really need Jesus, notice that there are people here that Jesus does not call. Look at the end of the passage. He says, I did not come to call the righteous. These are the self-righteous, the people that think, I'm doing okay. Living the all-American life and well-liked and moral and accepted by society and successful. And it's like, if you, if you don't recognize your sin, if you don't see that you are sick, then you cannot follow Christ. So the first painful step in wanting to follow the Lord Jesus is to see your own sin, to feel the weight of it, and to hate your sin. To realize that there is something about you that is not right. I am sick. I am desperately sick. I, I cannot understand my own desires, the temptations that I give into. There is something wrong with me. Jesus says, if you don't see that about yourself, I'm not even calling you. You have to realize that you are sick and you need a doctor. The confession of sin was obvious in Mark chapter 1 when John the Baptist came preparing the way for the ministry of Christ. It says the people were going to John at the Jordan River and they were confessing their sins. They were recognizing that they had broken God's law and that they were under God's condemnation. They realized that. So that's the first step of being a follower of Christ. You have to realize your, your soul sickness and you have to confess it. But secondly, he, he quotes this passage to them. And even before he gets to the verse, look what he says in verse 13. He says, but go and learn. This is actually a a well-known statement during that time, which would have the flavor of saying, you should know this already. This is a rebuke. This is a, he, Jesus is embarrassing their pride. He's like, this should be basic information for you, but you don't understand it. I want you to go and learn. And then he quotes, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. The reason this particular quotation is so powerful, there's a couple of reasons. One is he's quoting Hosea chapter 6 verse 6, 
what he, he's using scripture to prove his logic about the sick needing a doctor. Now he's being even more specific. God is looking for people who internally love him and obey him. He says, look, people bring me <clears throat> religious activity all the time. You bring me your sacrifices. You guys are, are gathered here tonight for a religious activity for a number of different motivations. He says the external means nothing if the internal is not sincere. He says, I desire compassion. I'm looking for the person who truly wants to listen to my word, who wants to tremble when they hear my voice, and they want to obey what I tell them to do. So external does matter. It's not insignificant, but it is eclipsed by your heart, your mind, and your motive. As Jesus scans your heart, does he see somebody who loves him and who loves his word? And it's real easy to sit in Bible study and say, yes, I do, but I want you to look at the pattern of your life. Do you love Christ and his word? Is there fruit of that? So God is looking for not just the rituals, not just the activity, but he wants someone who has a heart that's after him. In fact, in, in kind of similar language, in, in Amos chapter 5, God looks at the nation who got so far away from their relationship with God that it was all just religious activity. And God says, I hate your festivals. Can you imagine God saying, I hate your prayers, I hate your offering, I hate your religious activity, I hate your singing, because your heart's not in it. God looks at the heart of the worshiper. That's why he told the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that he is looking for those who worship in spirit and truth, not just externally. So God looks at the heart. And then Jesus adds this, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There are people that Jesus is not calling to salvation. Those who think they do not need to be transformed by His mercy and grace. People who do not think that they need to repent. People who do not recognize that their heart is desperately sick and wicked. He says, I'm not calling them. I'm calling those who know they're sick. By the way, everybody's sick. But the people who ignore it, he says, I'm not calling them. I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. So a couple of obvious questions from the passage tonight. Are you sick? Do you see your condition? And have you turned to God by faith and looked to Christ to say, I need to be somebody different? It's not just to clean up your life. It's not just a change habits. It's you need to be a new person. You need to have a new heart and you need to be a new creation. Have you done that through faith in Christ and Christ alone? Every other religion in the world will tell you to do certain things in order to earn favor. God says, 
I hate that. That is not how anybody can approach me. He says, you need to come realizing there's nothing that you can do, and then I will give you what you're lacking. I will give you righteousness, which you don't have. Jesus came to pay for our sins so that he could change us and make us new. The other thing is that you need to make sure that you're worshiping God with all your heart, not just externals. This is now, I'm talking to everybody, even even those of you who are believers, it's real easy to do your Bible reading, to do your prayers, to come to church, to sing, to listen to the word, and your heart is somewhere else. God says he's looking for those who are offering worship out of their heart and their mind, not just the external. Listen to the, when, when God chose King David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel's trying to choose which one of these people are going to be the next king because he doesn't know. So he's looking at all these sons of Jesse. He lines them up and he's trying to choose who they are. And, and uh, Samuel picks the one that's how we choose our all-star team, right? The tallest, the, the most handsome, the one that looks like he's holding himself the best. And, and the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what is the condition of your heart tonight? When you're engaged in your times of worship, are you offering something from a heart of sincerity? And maybe tonight you recognize that you're sick. Maybe you've been playing the religious game and you say, I need Jesus to change me. It's exactly what he did for Matthew. He says, you follow me, and he transformed his life. It's amazing. And the Lord can do so for you as well. Let's pray as we close. Father, we are grateful for your mercy. None of us are well. All of us are sick. And there's nothing that we can do to change our own condition. But Father, we are grateful that Jesus came not for those who were well. He came for those who are sick. Father, I thank you that Jesus calls sinners to himself. We do come as we are, but we know that we need to turn from our sins and to be changed by your gospel and your grace. And Father, for us that um, are in Christ, help us to always bring our worship with hearts of sincerity and not just externals because you look at our hearts. Father, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be pleasing to you as we live, as we work, as we do our school, as we have our relationships, and as we gather as your people as well. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.